Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. Policy things and personal things. This one was just kind of funny. So a seventh grade kid wrote to Ronald Reagan, Today my mother declared my bedroom a disaster area. I would like to request federal funds to hire a crew to clean up my room. Reagan writes to him, Dear Andy, I'm sorry to be so late in answering your letter, but as you know, I've been in China and found your letter here upon my return. Your application for disaster relief has been duly duly noted, but I must point out one technical problem. The authority declaring the disaster is supposed to make the request, in this case, your mother. However... Setting that aside, I'll have to point out the larger problem of available funds. This has been a year of disasters, 539 hurricanes, numerous floods, forest fires, a drought in Texas, a number of earthquakes. What I'm getting at is that funds are dangerously low. May I make a suggestion? This administration, believing that government has done many things that could better be done by volunteers at the local level, has sponsored a private sector initiative program calling upon people to practice volunteerism in the solving of a number of local problems. Your situation appears to be a natural. I'm sure your mother was fully justified in proclaiming your room a disaster. Therefore, you are in an excellent position to launch another volunteer program to go along with the more than 3,000 already underway in our nation. Congratulations. Give my best regards to your mother. Sincerely, Ronald Reagan. (laughs) The fact that the, the leader of the free world would take the time to write, I'm like, he's got better things to do with his time. Um, But the fact that he would do that says something because letters are just, they're just different. You know, letters, we had to write letters to our kids. We had a lock-in for students a couple weeks ago. I had four kids at the lock-in, and and so we had to write letters to each of them, and that took uh, some time and some effort and, and searching your heart, you know, because letters are intimate, and they show something about the people involved in the letters. Now, when it comes to Paul in the New Testament, we get so used to the Bible just being the Bible, but the Bible is a collection of the New Testament. A lot of them are are letters, and some of them are letters to churches, so from a person to a group of people, and a lot of those were intended to be then circulated among other churches in a region, so groups of groups of people, but a few of them are person-to-person letters, and and 1 and 2 Timothy are among those, and they're some of my favorite books of the Bible Because while they're instructions to a pastor about how to lead a church, they are deeply personal letters from from Paul to Timothy. So I'm going to start by reading two verses from 1 Timothy that I think are representative of the tone of the rest of that letter. And I want to illustrate um, how it points to a relationship that I feel like probably almost all of us are missing out on in our lives and particularly our spiritual lives, that would make a huge difference if we had it. So here's um, the verses. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. So let me just pick that apart for a second. This charge I entrust to you, you probably... No one's probably ever had someone actually say those words, this charge I entrust to you. So I included uh, the message translation, Eugene Peterson's translation of this. I'm passing this work on to you, Timothy. And if I put them together, I think it's more than just passing on, but I'm trusting this really vital work to you, 
Timothy. So do you have someone who's trusted to you an important job? And at work, that probably happens consistently, but the job might not be important in the same way that this type of work is important. So do people trust stuff with, with you? Timothy, my child. Timothy, or a Paul, routinely expresses that he an affection for Timothy or a, a sense of feeling for Timothy that is similar that a father would have for a child. Do you have that type of relationship with someone or does someone have that type of relationship with you? And then the freedom to tell you that. Um, we're in church and church is a family. And so, you know, there is a, like a, a brother and sister thing that I, that years ago I kind of grasped as like, oh, that's real. But this is a step beyond that. And then again, like the, the, um, the freedom to say that goes counter to, I think, a lot in our culture. He says, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you. And so Paul is aware of Timothy's potential. He's reminding Timothy of his potential. He's calling Timothy into his potential. And he's telling Timothy, I'm not going to let you settle for anything less than your potential. Paul has expectations for Timothy, and he's willing to challenge him into those expectations. Um, do you have people in your life? that have expectations for you and other people that you see potential in that you're willing to call them into that potential. He says uh, that by them you may wage the good warfare holding faith and a good conscience so he's not going to let him settle. He's not going to let him abdicate his position of leadership. He's going to call him to fight for the good. Warfare seems you know, extreme and, and in the, the message translation it says after all this is a fight we're in. Um, Alan and I were talking about this passage this week because we've had this conversation before about the necessity of these types of relationships and, and how infrequent um, and uncommon that they are. And Alan made the point that this type of relationship usually doesn't happen outside the context of some form of mission. Like something really critical that needs to happen calls you into this type of relationship. And whenever there's critical mission, there's resistance to it. And so it's going to feel like a fight and there's going to be resistance and you're going to have to push through it and you need someone to help you um, with that. And so he calls him to that, to hold on to his faith, to, uh, to hold faith and a good conscience, which I think that hold a good conscience is to like stay grounded in the gospel when you, when you feel like drifting from it. And so you're going to go deeper and to see in every aspect of your life and yourself through the lens of the gospel that you're made in God's image, that you are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that he's created beforehand for you to walk into, that you're made by him, loved by him, and called to something great to walk into, um, that you're sinful. And so I tell my, use this language with my kids, you're great, but you're not perfect, you know, in trying to balance those things. Um, and so you're sinful, and you're going to find out there are some sins that you're incredibly stubborn about <laughs> that have an impact on the people around you in some places in your heart and soul where you're just downright wicked, and you don't even want to look at them. And so you need um, to be rescued because that sin left unchecked is going is to, it could ruin your life and the life of people around you. And so you need the rescue, and, and God's given you the rescue through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and Jesus has risen and he's alive and he wants relationship with you now and he's called you into the mission of the church and so like keeping those things in in the center and not letting him fade from those things and not letting him fall for, as a leader which you know we've seen so many particularly christian leaders doing that um recently and so all of that stuff and the these verses are representative of the tone 
of the rest of these two letters. And so I stopped there and I thought, man, does, does anybody speak to me like that? Um, you know, sort of. I mean, my dad routinely tells me how proud he is of me, um, even now and more so in these later years. And, uh, and I don't know who I would be without that. You know, I don't know what I would be like without that. My mom tunes into the services and regularly encourages, but that's a different thing than I'm trusting you with this critical task and, and you can do it and I know you can do it. And so I'm calling you into it and I'm going to keep you accountable to it and encourage you through it. Does someone speak to me like that about not just my work as a pastor or my, my work, but about my role as a husband? Is someone like holding me to the expectation of who I can be as a husband, as a father, as a neighbor in the mission that Christ has called me to? And not impersonally, you know, like an Instagram meme that makes you feel good and like gets you going in the morning or a conference speaker or an author or even a pastor that knows you but is speaking to a crowd. But that somebody's look, willing to like sit you down over a meal and look you in the eye and say these things to you. Do you speak to anybody like Paul speaks to Timothy? And would it matter uh, if you did? And what I came out of this is like, these guys have a relationship that is like an over there. This relationship is over there and we're kind of over here. <laughs> like most of us don't. We might have hints of that relationship or different pieces of it, but we don't really have the fullness of that. And, um, and I'm not like the... the the distance between here and there cannot be covered completely in a sermon, but I can point out what that's like and what we're missing out on with that and a few steps that we could take. And that's really um, about what I hope to do today with this. Now, let me give you a little bit more context on their relationship. Paul made three missionary journeys in what's modern-day Turkey and Greece to start churches. And on the first one, he stopped at a city called Lystra that's in modern-day Turkey. He met a woman named Eunice, um, who had a mother named Lois, and they either became Christians, this is about 20 years after Jesus rose from the dead, they either became Christians when Paul was there or they were Christians. Um, Eunice was married to a guy that just says he was a Greek. We don't think he was a Christian. He had a son named Timothy. He was not a child, as I did the math this week. He was you know, probably between 20 and 30 when Paul came the first time. And, um, and then Paul leaves. He comes back a few years later, and Timothy is to a point of spiritual maturity where Paul says, hey, I want to take him with me on the rest of this journey as I'm planning these churches. And so he does, and Paul, or Timothy becomes a vital part of his ministry. He travels to a lot of these cities that Paul goes to. He helps um, Paul, he co-authors a number of his letters. Uh, eventually, he installs Timothy as the pastor of the church in Ephesus. He becomes the bishop of Ephesus. And according to church tradition, this is in the Bible, but he, in 97 AD, at the age of 80, Timothy um, is killed by some worshipers of the goddess Diana as he's preaching the gospel to him. And so he's the bishop of Ephesus and has a long-term ministry in that. When this letter is written, he's early in that ministry. He's probably in his late 30s, and Paul is probably um, about the age of 60. So there's a 15 to 20-year age difference between the two of them. They've known each other for 15 or 20 years, and they've been in ministry together for more than, than 10 years. So that's like the you know, the context of their relationship. I started thinking about this, and um, my old boss was a guy named Mike Lee, who until a few months ago was a pastor of a big church in town called Hope Community Church. We're 15 years apart. I got to know Mike when I was in my mid-20s, and Mike was in his early 40s. I started going to Hope when I moved down here, and Hope was about 100 people. And after a few years, Mike called me into his ministry and said, hey, um, why don't you come on staff as our youth pastor? And... Uh, and so, like, there's some similarities 
um, in our relationship. He's been hugely influential in my life, but rarely spoke to me. So I've got like pieces of this relationship, but rarely spoke to me with the intentionality that Paul speaks to, to Timothy with. And I, I think that's partly his personality, but partly, honestly, our culture kind of works against this type of relationship. Um, I was thinking about this this week, and I, and I talked to Jason about it. There's a guy that helped start the church, our church, named Jason Gore, and he went back to Hope, was a small groups pastor, then the executive pastor, and now is actually the lead pastor at Hope. But back in the day before we started this church, and Jason and I were on staff together um, at Hope, we were having a conversation with Mike one day, and I couldn't remember what prompted this conversation, but Jason said to Mike, Mike, hey, I don't need like tons of encouragement. Just every once in a while, I need to hear that I don't suck, you know, like that's it. And so Mike later that day typed up, Jason, you don't suck, love Mike, put it in big print, printed it out, and, and stuck it on Jason's desk. And that's about the extent of the intentionality with which, you know, you would get that type of encouragement. Um, and yet he was, he, there was one time he was super intentional with me. Um, Bobby Joe and I met there, and we got engaged, and he called me into his office on a Friday afternoon. And I'd been on staff for six months or so, but he'd known me for a um, he'd known me for a couple of years at that point. He said, "Jeff, I'm gonna." And, and that weekend, we were going to Virginia to see Bobby Joe's brother play basketball, and we we're gonna be with her her mom. And he said, um, "He said I'm gonna give you a piece of advice, and from what I know about you, you're not gonna follow it, but I'm gonna give it to you anyway." He said, "When you get up there, the only thing they're gonna talk about for two straight days is the wedding." And, uh, and you've never thought about your wedding. You haven't thought about your wedding for like two seconds in your entire life. They've been thinking about nothing but that since she was like two years old. That's been background noise. And so they're going to start talking about it. And you're going to start getting ideas about what you think this wedding should be like. And you're going to want to tell them what your ideas are about that wedding. And my advice to you is just don't do that, you know. And when they ask you a question about what you think about the wedding, your response should be, you know what? I'm not sure. I've never really thought about that. What do you guys think? And whatever they say, find a way to kind of channel that back to them. And that's the best way to handle that situation. That was fantastic advice, personalized to me. I needed it. I took it. I've given that to 50 guys um, since then. But that's probably about the extent of how personal it was. And that's not to disrespect Mike. I love him. Next to my dad, he's the most influential man uh, in, my, in my life. Um, and he did. There were a few times when, when I was coming on staff at Hope. I was in my late 20s. And uh, he said, well, we need to make you an elder before we make you a pastor because pastors are elders and all that. And I said, well, I'm, don't elders have to be older? You know, and he said, well, Timothy wasn't very old and he was an elder. And so he was pastor. And I'm like, well, you got a point there. And I said, well, don't I, don't I have to go to seminary if I'm going to be a pastor? And he said, well, they didn't have seminaries in the Bible, you know. And so Timothy was a pastor though, and Paul was a pastor, and I'm like, ooh, you got a point there. And, um, and then he said, listen, you've been here for a few years. We know your character. I know your character. I know how well you know the word. I've seen you interact with these kids, and like, I see something in you, and so I'm calling you into this. And it's just, that's one of the most significant conversations in my life, you know? Um, there was a pastor in Ohio before that, it's a church I was a part of, was, I wasn't in ministry at all, but that pastor said to a friend of mine who back-channeled it to me, he said, watch Ramsey, he's going to be a pastor, he's got a pastor's heart. And so my friend told me that, and this was not on my radar, you know, but it spoke volumes into me that he saw that in me and that it got back to me. Like, this stuff matters. Uh, and I don't know, you know, if you have that or if you are that. 
Um, but we should be that, and we need it. Um, a few more, like, just snippets from these letters. Uh, at one point, Paul says to Timothy, let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in faith, in, uh, in love, in faith, and in purity. And so don't, don't let them define you. Don't let them, you know, don't let the haters hate, uh, is what he's saying. Remember who you are. Don't let them get you down. And that's a way of saying, I believe in you, even if in the bubble that you're in, you've lost sight of who you are and what you've been called to. And then he says, but you be an example for them. I never really thought about this as much as I did this week, but in speech, okay, in speech, in conduct, all right, and specifically in your conduct, in the way that you love, be an example for them. Uh, in, in your faith, like would your faith be bold enough that it would challenge people and give people something to look up to? And in purity, he is setting the bar high for Timothy. Another one, don't neglect the gift that you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you, which again is remember who you are. Don't forsake the potential that you have. You may not believe in yourself now, but those elders laid hands on you because God told them to, because God called you to this, because God knows who you are better than you know who you are. And don't you need somebody to tell you that, like on a regular basis? Uh, and then says, practice these things, immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. Uh, and so he says, like, get going. Set the bar high. Live your life out in a way that everybody would see it so that you're accountable um, because you can do this. Another one, as for you, O man of God, flee these things. So, O man of God, here's who you are. And then he says, flee these things. Whenever the Bible says flee something, what do you think it's talking about? I always think it's sex in the New Testament. You know, like that's just what comes to mind. It's money. This is right after he says, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And he says, you got to keep them from getting wrapped up in that, but you got to keep from getting wrapped up in that. And so don't settle uh, for just a little bit more. You know, don't settle for the American dream. And he says, but pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. I started thinking, what does our culture coach us to pursue? And it's not those things. Our culture coaches us to pursue more because everything runs on it, you know. And, it, and, um, and so he's coaching him to pursue something different. Fight the good fight of faith. Uh, take hold the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So he's calling, you made this commitment and you have to hold to this commitment. You made this confession. And so, so stand up to it. Um, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pilate, he made the good confession and stuck with it. And you're going to too. And the end of that verse is until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Like you're going to stick with this until Jesus comes back. Like you're in it to the end, Timothy. Um, there's another one. I thank my God whom I serve with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. And when somebody tells you that they're praying for you, like that, that matters to me, you know? And if I'm honest, there's a little bit of me, there's a little bit of me that my instant reaction is like, oh, you think there's something wrong with me so bad that you need to pray for me? Which there is, you know, but I resist that. Then there's a part of me that's like, oh, you have better things to do with your time. You, there's more important things. But, I mean, and there are, but they're not, you know? And when someone tells you that they're taking their time out to go before the throne of God on your behalf, man, that makes a difference. 
And he says, I remember your tears. I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. Is there someone that you say this to or they say it to you? I long to see you because when I see you, I am filled with joy. And what does that do to you? Uh, John and I are in this pastor's cohort with, with um, these four, four other guys. And one of them, the guy in Philadelphia, Ian, is the, he's, he's like 6'4", this big, boisterous, Philly, oldest of six Irish Catholic brothers and everything you think that's going to be and like super biblical and spiritual. And so he's the one that talks like this to all of us in this group text. And whenever we're about to get together, he'll send something out that says, man, you guys meet, like my life is, is just not the same because of what God has done through you guys. And it brings me so much joy to get together with you. And the first few years I was like, I'm not sure I buy this, but now I do. And it's fantastic, man. Um, and, and I admire it and appreciate it so much. Uh, and then last one, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying out of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of timidity, but of power and love and self-control. And who do you tell that God didn't give you a spirit of fear? You tell the person that you know is scared. <laughs> like that's where Timothy is. And he's saying, no, God gave you a spirit of power and a spirit of love and a spirit of gentleness. This is like one long Braveheart speech, but not to a group of people. It's like William Wallace got right in front of you and just grabbed your face, and you want to look away, but he's not letting you, and he's looking you right in the eye and saying, no, this is true, and we need that. So there's a, there's a relationship that we're made for um, that we're missing out on. There's a there over there, and we're over here, and we should want to be there. I thought about... Um, you know, how would this matter? And really, one of the first things that came to mind is, um, I think you hear this from time to time, the statistics about the difference a father makes in, in a child's life, and the statistics, particularly about crime and imprisonment of, of folks that don't have fathers. And I thought about this in terms of, like, are we missing out spiritual fathers? So one of the guys that I, that I follow a lot is a guy named Anthony Bradley, and he's huge on this the importance of fathers. He wrote in a little article, he said, fatherless affects all of us and it's the root of all kinds of evil and brokenness. It's well documented that 60% of rapists, 72% of adolescent murderers, 70% of long-term prison inmates are men who grew up in homes without dads. The level of correlation between fatherlessness and social pathologies should be a call to arms. The future of civil society hangs in the balance. It says young men who grew up in homes without fathers are twice as likely to end up in jail as those who come from traditional two-parent families, even when other factors um, such as race, income, parent education, and urban residence were held constant. And the study he's quoting is from the University of Pennsylvania in Princeton. And he's saying children from low-income two-parent families outperform students from high-income single-parent homes. And just that the voice of a father matters that much. So what... What are they missing? You know, and there is a sense of identity of who you are that a father gives you. Now, there aren't statistics on motherlessness because mothers are always there, you know? <laughs> and that's, their voice matters just as much, but we have more absent fathers, and so we have more data on it, you know? But they give you a sense that you're loved, uh, a sense that you matter, a sense that you have a role to play and a family within which to play that role that you've been gifted to play, that you have a future, the encouragement of, I love you and I'm proud of you and how much that matters to you and accountability of if you go off the rails, I'm coming after you, <laughs> you know, and that matters. And it's, it's not the same, but certainly there are parallels to the need for spiritual fathers and mothers 
reminding us of who we are and calling us into that potential. And I don't know what the, equival- the equivalent of being like imprisoned when it comes to your, your walk with Christ, like what's the consequence of that? But it's probably just a lack of spiritual growth. Um, it's probably a stagnant, meaningless relationship with God that doesn't change you and doesn't change the people around you. Uh, a chronic, persistent pattern of sin that you don't experience change in regards to that will put you in a form of spiritual prison and that would certainly be impacted if you had someone close whom you allowed to have a voice in your life, reminding you of who you are, of what's possible, and not letting you settle uh, for less. It would matter. I think it would matter a ton in the church um, in the United States. So we should want to be there. I think we're supposed to be there. Uh, Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that's in Christ Jesus. And what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust a faithful man who will be able to teach others also. And so there is a relational dynamic to how things are passed on. And it's the context within which the gospel is passed on. Jesus did that. You know, he invested in 12, but really in three. And so he spoke deeply into the lives of a few who he expected to speak deeply into the lives of a few. Uh, We're made for that. What would it take for us to, to get from here to there? you know, to, to move closer to having those types of relationships. And I think a few quick things, humility is one of them. Um, the humility to admit that we need that voice and to let that voice in. Um, there's a whole nother sermon here about our culture and identity formation and radical individualism and UBU and who are you to tell me how to live and everything that, that kind of rails against letting someone speak into your life like that. Uh, but also, and, and maybe more importantly, the humility to be the type of person that has the right and ability to speak like that. And so at the beginning of this letter, Paul says something. He says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. That's the person you want speaking into your life that says, man, I'm so screwed up that I needed the grace of Jesus so much. And that's the person that can speak grace into your life. And he goes on and says, I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. And so he talks about the patience that Jesus had to have for him, Paul, in his own life. And I thought, that's probably, there's probably a good litmus test in there of on a scale of one to ten, how patient do you, as you sit here, think that Jesus had to be with you? You know, one being like, well, I don't know, it wasn't that bad. And 10 being like, I can't, I continually am, am perplexed by the, the fact that I'm even here. Like Jesus had to be that patient with me. And if your patience, the, you, the patience that you estimate he had to have with you isn't like at a six or seven, honestly, you're probably not ready to speak into somebody else's life because it takes humility to be in that, um, to be in that spot. So humility. I thought about the effort to really do this relationship well um, because these relationships don't grow on trees, you know. Uh, Paul knows Timothy. He knows Timothy's backstory. He's thought through the job he's given to Timothy. He's traveled together with him and shared meals. He knows the resistance he faces, and he's thought through what that's like. He prays for him night and day. He's cried with him. And so that level of effort, um, our culture probably mitigates against that, Uh, it takes a lot. There's a, 
a video that we we encouraged everyone to watch this week. There was an interview with a um, a Pastor X, they called him, and he's a pastor in the Middle East, probably in Iran, and he married a woman who grew up in a radical Muslim environment and was converted to Christianity in just a crazy way. You should watch that video if you have the link to it. And um, and then they came back to the West and lived for a while, and she said, I want to go back. And he's like, what do you mean? Like, we have everything here. And she said, the church here is asleep, and it's asleep to a satanic lullaby. And every time I resist it, the lullaby speeds up. And I thought, man, that is what culture does to us, is we think it's going so fast that we could never carve out time for this. And that's a huge problem. So it takes effort, humility and effort, and then just courage. Um, I think I have experienced this type of relationship. And there are people that I definitely feel this way about, but oftentimes it comes through crisis, um, which maybe that's what has to happen, you know. Uh, but courage to say, I'm not going to settle. And courage to risk some awkward conversations and really to risk some distance in a relationship to tell people something that you think they really need to hear. Um, Julie and I were talking about this beforehand, and I thought, man, I think women are better than this than guys are. Because I read a lot of articles about how middle-aged guys are just lonely. We tend to isolate. It doesn't seem like girls are like that, but I'm not a girl, so I don't know. And she said she feels like guys are probably better at the challenging each other part of it. And girls are probably better at the encouraging each other part of it, but don't really want to challenge each other. And just, But it's just messy. And so courage to, to receive this type of love and courage to give it and to take the risks that, that come with it. And then I thought, like, what's, how do we get from here to there? And like I said, there's no short term. There's no, like, quick answer to this. Um, this type of, you know, life-on-life life discipleship is something that, um, a lot of college ministries do well. And they probably do that well because in college there's freshmen and sophomores and juniors and seniors. So you kind of have an idea of who should be speaking to who about things. And it's a limited time thing. You know, it's four years in college. And part of this is you'll probably have, I think in a, in a really healthy life of walking with Jesus in our culture, you'd probably have four, five, six, seven voices like this throughout your life that if for a different season will speak to you or that you'll speak into, but it's for a season, and you're not quite sure when it starts and you're not quite sure when it ends. But that would be healthy. College, you know when it starts and you know when it ends. And also in college, college is college, and so everybody's kind of dealing with the same challenges, and those can be really different when it comes to, um, when it comes to real life. We've always believed as a church that, that growth is going to happen more through relationship than content. And so... Pro- when you, when you do discipleship according to primarily programs, then people are accountable to information, and the assumption is the information is the thing that's going to transform you. And the gospel certainly is the thing that's going to transform you, but the gospel is about relationship with Jesus. And when you're, in, when you're in relationships, then that's where you expect discipleship to happen. You're accountable not to information, but to life change, and somebody that really knows if the gospel is changing you. And so the programs that we have and the classes and home groups and journey groups and men's and women's ministries, um, and they are, they're an end to themselves. I mean, they're good things that come out of those things, but sometimes we just stop at whatever the end of the specific thing is without realizing they are also a means and maybe primarily a means to a greater end of putting you in a position to have really critical relationships with some people around you. And so in your home group or in your journey group or in a men's or women's um, class, 
like this is where you find out who these people might be um, in your life. And so our home groups, I, and a lot of them are like that. Scott Haith has an ever-growing journey group, and Scott doesn't want to admit this is what he's doing, but this is what he's doing. And John had a men's study this spring that was awesome, but I think it's because there's a need for this type of relationship that was coming out, and the women have done the if gatherings and the book studies, and I think it's context for this type of relationship. And as we reconnect as a church um, over the next couple months, this is something that we'll talk uh, more about because um, because we know how necessary it is, and we have a, an opportunity to have a renewed um, focus on it. But let me finish this out, and the band can come back up here. But we, you may be new to all this, <laughs> and, you, and it may kind of freak you out, because the church has done this. This is why I said humility is critical for this, because the church has done this weird, like, and gotten this wrong um, a lot of times throughout the history of the church. But then we back off of it and don't do it at all, and we can't find some balance with it. Um, but, but you know you need that. I mean, you know you need someone speaking into you that's telling you who you are and what you're made for. And that's not one of us. Ultimately, that's Jesus that's telling you who you are and what you're made for. And um, you need that first part that I was talking about, a good conscience and what the gospel is. And someone years ago laid out very simply for me, the gospel is you're more sinful than you ever imagined, but you're more loved than you ever dared hope. And um, and that's that's what the Bible says about us and um, why Christ came from heaven to earth to die on a cross from us and rise from the dead to give us the hope that we can become the people that he created us to be. And your step first is you need Jesus. And we would love to help you start your relationship with Jesus. But those of you and a lot of you that have been walking with Jesus for a while and feel like, man, I've got a little bit of it, but I definitely don't have all of it. I would say look for aspects of it that are already there in certain relationships in your life and be really grateful for those and like step into them. I mean, I've thought this week about times where I have recently spoken into people, hey, this is who you are, and remember that, and I believe in you, and Jesus believes in you, and this is, and that's probably easier for me than to raise the bar for people, but to raise the bar for people, and look for aspects of relationships that you have where that's happening, um, but look for opportunities to take that to another level, and for that to be another step, and maybe there is a relationship that God's putting on your heart where you're supposed to be speaking into somebody, or they're you know, you want them speaking into you and just start praying and asking God for what he wants to have happen with that relationship. Because as that happens, and as we, you know, just notch up and, and John and I were talking about this, maybe 20% of people have a relationship that's kind of like that. If we move from 20 to 40%, it'll change the, it'll just change the tenor of the church. And, um, and those are the steps that we'll be looking to take over the next few months. Father, I thank you for this um, picture that we have in, uh, in the Bible, I thank you for an intensely personal set of correspondence between Paul and Timothy and that the, their hearts are laid open before us, God. And um, I've experienced that. I think I've been that for some people, but I, I know that it's not the fullness of what that's supposed to be. And I know it's tricky, Lord, and yet I know you want it. And so I pray that you would put on our hearts specific relationships uh, that you have greater purpose for and that we would um, take the time to step aside and consider what you want and put the effort into it and have the courage um, to speak into that and that that would happen for specific people in the next few weeks Lord um, in a way that would would ultimately benefit us and you and, and your kingdom Lord and I do pray that if there's anybody here that doesn't know you 
it's that first step of hearing who you think they are, that they're made in your image and that you have loved them uh, and you have purpose for them, but we have a problem we cannot solve by ourselves, and that's why Jesus had to come and die on the cross, and we need to receive what he's done for us and enter into a relationship with him and begin to follow him, God, that you would call them to that place of surrender where they would first give themselves to you. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name.